Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a returning guest who appeared on Just Checking In Pod number 69 way back when in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. James Bloodworth is a journalist, New Statesman columnist and the author of two books, Hired and The Myth of Meritocracy, which we discussed in depth in his first episode. During the pandemic, James returned to Cornwall to live with and support his grandmother. James saw this as repaying a childhood debt after she helped raise him for much of his adolescence. Unfortunately, James' grand passed away in 2022 and the impact the grief had on him was immense and made him question his path in life, the choices he's made and affected his relationships with those closest to him. In this episode, we discuss that grief and why it had such a profound impact on him. We talk about how it's forced him to grow up, even as a 39-year-old, how it's forced him to address underlying mental health issues he'd been pushing to the side up until this point, and putting new internal systems in place to deal with the ups and downs of life. We also discuss the anxiety he'd been having during COVID-19 and how he figured out it alleviated significantly when he stopped taking his ADHD medication. We analyse the pros and cons of that decision, and his experience of going on antidepressants he was prescribed after his grand's death. So this is how part two of my conversation with James Bloodworth went. James Bloodworth, my mate, welcome back to the Just Checking In pod. Our first conversation feels a very, very long time ago, but thanks to me, you also gave me my first bit of proper TV work. It almost feels like a different world to where we're sitting now. How are you, mate? How was your Christmas and New Year? Yes, yeah, it's, it's nice to be back on. Christmas and New Year was good. It was uh, nice to have a relatively normal Christmas and New Year compared to the last two years. You know, a bit less COVID around, a bit less of a lockdown vibe to it. So yeah, it was it was good. Thank you. Brilliant, mate. I'm very privileged that you decided to share what you're going to talk about on the pod, mate, as I'm sure you've probably been asked by other outlets to speak about it. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yep, ready to go when you are. This pod is going to be very, very simple, mate, and we're just simply going to pick up where we left off in the last episode. So firstly, in this mental health journey continued, what has been your reflections on the last pod and who's the James we meet now? I'd say the last three years, I mean, since COVID or since around COVID started, have been the most probably transformational years of my life in some ways for both good and bad. I'd say that's probably true for lots of people, I think. We lived through kind of an unprecedented kind of generational global event, which isn't isn't something that everyone has to go through. That brings its own mental health challenges. So for me, one of those was obviously I spent a year during lockdown. I spent that looking after my grandmother. I was fairly isolated. It was very difficult. It was very challenging mental health wise. I received a diagnosis for ADHD during the COVID lockdown period. And then I lost my grandmother almost a year ago, last January. And that was the person I was closest to 
as a child growing up. So there was obviously a period of grieving that went with that. And again, that's kind of a, a mental health challenge in its own right, isn't it? Dealing with the grief in a way that doesn't completely like discombobulate you, but also processing it properly. So you're not kind of burying it or, you know, and, and you actually process the grief and grieve in a way that you can come out the other side of it without falling into this hole of depression. The last few years have been very eventful, but transformational, yeah, in many ways. We're going to talk about your gran later on in the pod, mate. But just first of all, picking up what you said there about your ADHD. So we went in depth about your diagnosis in the first episode. We also talked about anxiety. And we're going to talk about this long bout of anxiety you went through in the last year or so that started during the first lockdown. So tell the listeners how it started, what you initially thought was the trigger, and when did you realize the truth of what was the manifestation of it? So during 2020, when lockdown first happened, I thought maybe this was going to be like a six month thing. I decided to leave London to go and look after my grandmother because she was 91 at the time. So I felt like I needed to shield her from COVID because she spent a lot of time with me when I was younger, basically brought me up. So it was a kind of returning the favor type of situation for me anyway. And lockdown, you know, lockdown was kind of fine to begin with. And I think like a lot of people, the forced isolation of it, it gets to you after a while, inevitably. So that had a big impact on my own mental health. But also, I mean, there was other things going on at the same time. So I had somebody stalking me at this time, like harassing me on online quite viciously. And, and just over a period of it went on altogether for around two years. But it kind of reached its, uh, it kind of reached the worst point. Mm. It became the a most zenith, intense yes. during, yeah. during lockdown. So during the April 2020. It became very intense, just being constantly harassed. Somebody, you know, setting up fake email accounts and fake identities online, pretending to be me, emailing my workplace, my workplaces, things like this. That just created an added layer of stress, which, you know, in addition to the uncertainty of the kind of COVID situation, we're in this world where no one knows when this is actually going to end. It seems even strange to think about it now that pre-vaccines, whatever, we didn't know how many years this was going to go on. We could have been locked down for, you know, years and years no one really knew to be honest and that created a whole level of anxiety it was almost ptsd like the kind of anxiety from the stalking in particular and yeah and, and being locked away you have so much time to ruminate on what's happening in the world so the lockdown itself you have more time to ruminate on the situation that's that's created the lockdown which which makes you even more anxious and fearful and mm. also you know i had this undiagnosed adhd at that time which was making it hard to focus anyway, hard enough to focus anyway. And when you add the added layer of anxiety of what's going on in the world to that, it was just debilitating. Like, I didn't feel like I, I stopped writing. I couldn't socialize because of what was happening in the world. It was kind of a dark night of the soul, if you like. It was, it was kind of a real rock bottom point, I would say. You spoke there about trying to find out what the cause of this anxiety was. And you came to the conclusion that one factor, or perhaps it was a big factor, perhaps it was a, a small factor, but one factor was the ADHD medication, which was making it worse. So how did you find that out? Was it by trial and error? Did you come off it to check if it was kind of causing it? And what have been the pros and cons to coming off the ADHD medication, which I imagine was helping you focus? I started taking an ADHD medication called Vyvanse in, I think it was around November... 2020. The Vyvanse is kind of an amphetamine drug like lots of ADHD medication. And initially, it did seem to help. It certainly helped with, say, impulse control and focus. It didn't mean you were necessarily focusing on the right things, but it helps you to, to focus. But then some of the side effects of it were 
it was kind of not worth taking the medication. So I experienced increased anxiety with it, like significant anxiety with it, irritability, anger issues, paranoia. And I attributed a lot of these things to the global situation, you know, lockdown, what was happening with the stalking. But as those things kind of subsided and we went back to a more of a normality, I realized that it wasn't that. It was it was this medication I was taking. So I stopped taking it in, I think it was May of last year, May of 2022. And since then, I've been medication free. The ADHD is, yeah, it's still a massive challenge. I've had to improve lots of lifestyle things, like make sure I do exercise every day, go to the gym, get my 10,000 steps in, improve my diet, so avoid refined carbohydrates, sugars. I have to get eight hours sleep every day. And I actually have an appointment with my psychiatrist next weekend to talk about possibly different medication alternatives, you know. So maybe I'll be back on something, but I wouldn't, wouldn't, um, I mean, Garba Mate, who's written the book Scattered yes, Minds about yeah. ADHD, he talks about how with medication, you're essentially your own guinea pig with ADHD medication because everybody reacts differently to it. So the fact that I experienced those things with Vyvanse doesn't mean that everyone else would. It simply it didn't suit me. So the point now is to find an, another medication, which maybe will. I mean, I can get by without medication. It's just much more of a struggle. So we'll see how that goes. But I feel better in myself now I'm not taking medication. Hopefully that's a good sign, mate. And hopefully you can you can find a medication that works for you, whether it's going to work out for you or not. But yeah, as you said, it's very much an individual-based approach to men's mental health that I try and take. The reason or the main reason we're talking today, James, is like you said, in, in 2022, you lost your gran who'd you've been living with for most of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like you said, she was the woman who had raised you and brought you up for much of your life. She then passed away. So just give some additional context for the listeners about that period of your life, who she was to you and the relationship that you had together then and now. Ever since I was a little boy, my gran had looked after me, say, when my mum was working. I'd spend a lot of time with my gran on weekends, school holidays. I'd always be around there. And my gran basically brought me up. I became closer to my gran in many ways than to my mum when I was younger. And my mum got married again. So um, I've never met my dad. But my mum got married again when I was quite young. And, you know, so I had a stepfather. Then they broke up when I was around 15. And then I moved in full time with my grandmother. So while I was still in school, I moved to go and live with her. And I essentially lived there then till I was 23 when I went to university. We had an extremely close relationship. I suffered with asthma when I was younger, when I was a young boy. I missed quite a lot of school. You know, she basically nursed me back to health and I became much stronger. I wasn't that strong as a child. Kind of sickly, I suppose you, you, you would say. But she basically got me over that and, yeah, just completely got me through that. And then, yeah, it's, I looked after her during lockdown. You know, I was there looking after her for a year, exactly a year from March 2020 to March 2021. And it was just a case of, you know, it was that I had a sense of responsibility to do that. There was never any doubt that everything else had to be suspended, basically, to go and take care of my gran. Because to me, that just seems normal with someone who's like close family like that. It's just like what you do. There's no point, you know, moaning about it. But, you know, it, it did take a toll on my mental health, I would say. My gran was going into a decline then anyway, because she was at 91 and then 92 years old. She was suffering lots of, you know, confusion, memory loss. Mm. And then... We lost her at 21st of January last year. She suffered a fall in the night at her house. And then, like a lot of elderly people, didn't have the strength to like get back up off the floor. So then caught mm. pneumonia. She was on the floor for kind of 12 hours till my mum found her. And uh, she essentially died of old age. So mm. she went into hospital and then different 
organs one by one failed and it's it's kind of just back in in the past it would have just been called death from you know old age so i mean she lived a good life yeah i mean it was difficult processing it because for me it was someone who was always there so you lose that kind of safety net emotional safety net in some ways because she is the person who is super close who is always there but at the same time i think you have to get to a place where you have to get beyond that and get to a place where you recognize that she did live a good life that we are all you know mortal it's a natural thing her dying is a natural thing and I feel very grateful that I had her for so long I'm now you know 40 years old a couple of weeks ago don't look it mate <laughs> thank you thank my gran yeah for giving me a good diet but yeah I mean I had her till I was 40 years old so I feel incredibly lucky for that some people don't have grandparents never get to meet them my granddad died when he was 41 I never got to meet him so yeah I do feel incredibly lucky to have had her for such a long time growing up between the ages of 15 to 23 for you mate without that strong male role model in your life must have been very difficult so what did your nan or gran I should say sorry I used to call my nan my nan so that's why I'm, I, I, I refer to her refer to her as that what did she instill in you what values did she instill in you how did she balance having to kind of play both the masculine and the feminine role I guess and what are your favorite memories of your time together, perhaps any sayings or ad-libs that you hold fondly with you now? Yeah, I mean, I do think I did miss a male role model when I was younger. I think because as good a job as, say, my granddad and my mum as well, I mean, one reason I think, I think discipline can be quite important mm. from a male role model. So between when I was kind of a teenager, yeah, between about 15 to 19, maybe, I kind of was quite wild, quite a wild teenager. I wasn't really afraid of, of authority in any way. I used to get into trouble quite a lot. And I think having kind of a father figure helped because I think they don't have to be kind of like disciplinarian or, or violent or anything. But I think when there's a male figure present, I think there's that implicit threat that they could. Mm, you fear, yeah, you fear the disappointment or anger that they would have in you. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the, it's kind of even even like a physical threat. Even someone could never use the physical force against you like, and never even consider it. But the fact that there's the potentiality there that they could, as a boy, makes you hesitate a bit in certain aspects of your behavior. So when there's this kind of strong male figure there, I think they can be completely benevolent. They can never raise a hand to you ever. But I think the potentiality that they could if they wanted to, I think can keep you in line a bit, as a, especially as a, as a teenage boy. And I think that was something I probably missed with that, like, as good a job as my grand did. I kind of had to get myself in a place where I wasn't behaving like that anymore, if you see what I mean. And, and mm. things like college, uh, going back to college really helped that. But I do think, I do definitely think that not having a, a strong male role model did have a, a somewhat negative effect at least for a while when I was a teenager and when you got to those big moments having her there did that make it more special for your relationship so I imagine when you finished high school or you're about to go to the prom or you're about to finish sixth form or perhaps even hopefully she came to your graduation did that make that bond really close having her there I remember she got summoned to the headmaster's office because of uh, <laughs> my behavior in school so yeah that was uh, probably created a closer bond I don't know. It's, it's just, yeah, shared experiences generally help to create that bond. And there was just a closeness there. So I had that kind of bond that I, I suppose many people naturally have with their mother or father. I had that with my grandmother. So it's something that's just kind of there from the time you spend with them, I suppose, when you're very, very little. And then she was, of course, happy to see when I did start to 
improve my prospects, so to speak. So when I wrote wrote my book, yeah, you know, she was she was super excited about that and um, would follow what I was doing. And and I'm glad she kind of lived long enough to see me leave behind some of the old ways, if you see what I mean, and and start <laughs> to actually do something productive with my life. When you were with her during the the lockdowns and the the worst of the pandemic, I remember we would chat, and you were obviously quite anxious about protecting her and. The knowledge of COVID wasn't as high back then, so we didn't know what was transmissible and what wasn't. So how did you feel and how did she feel when she got the first, the second and the booster jab? How alleviating was that for you both? Yeah, I mean, I remember the day when she got the first vaccine. And for me, it was a massive sense of uh, relief. And, and She was one of the first, wasn't she, for her age bracket? It must have yeah, been. She got it, yeah, she got it, I think, about 10 days after the first person she was one of the first yeah so one of the you know there's not that many 92 year olds you know there's uh there's not as many as as you might think but yeah it was it was a massive it was also kind of a sense of accomplishment on the part of both of us like that we managed to like avoid covid during this time for a year just being super careful and yeah it did feel like there was a sense of achievement there like did what personally like i did what i set out to do i, I protected her from covid till there was a vaccine and, and then that wasn't nothing. It was it was a big sacrifice. It was worth it. I would do the same again. But it did mm. feel, on some level anyway, like a, a bit of a an accomplishment on both our parts. Yeah, and it was it was a massive relief. And thank you to the scientists, etc. Yeah, it was it was good. You mentioned good something moment. interesting there, mate, with the idea of protecting her. And I think there's a current cultural conversation, I guess, between some women who maybe not identify as feminists, someone like Nina Power, who talks about the masculine virtues of protection and loyalty that we might need to reinstill in men or perhaps re-emphasize. And there's perhaps an element of, I don't want to say ra maybe radical feminism is the wrong word, but something along those lines, which says that the idea of men protecting women is somehow patriarchal. But you said there quite naturally, you didn't moan, you felt it as a natural urge and desire to protect your grand. What is your perspective on that? I guess this is kind of a free flowing question, but I thought it was quite an interesting thing you said there. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was about a sense of duty, I guess, duty mm. and responsibility. So I do think that we have as, not even just as men, just as people, if you like, there is a responsibility to take care of people who are in a weaker position than we are. I mean, family is obviously at the front of the queue with, for most people with that. But I think generally as a society, we have a duty to try and protect more vulnerable people. And I don't think in terms of masculinity, yeah, to me, the masculinity I kind of identify with, yeah, that is a part of that, that men, at least physically, tend to be stronger than women. That's just a fact, like on average. I know it's not just about physical strength nowadays, but I mean, you do have a duty to protect, therefore, more vulnerable members of your quote-unquote tribe. Mm. And my grandmother fit that bill. So I feel a duty to protect her. I understand with this whole gender debate about masculine and feminine. I mean, there's people who will say that, you know, oh, it's entirely socially constructed. It's, it's just gender roles. Yeah, it's something that's fabricated to enforce kind of a patriarchal society. But I mean, I think to some extent it is. But no, not entirely. I, I think gender is partly downstream from sex and sexuality so the way we present as men and women is partly a, a product of sexual selection without going too deep into this it's you know men pursue status men go to the gym to build muscle because like heterosexual men because women tend to select for those things so go on homosexual men probably as well if you go to soho <laughs> yeah yeah i mean because someone who's attracted to 
masculinity, whether it's a heterosexual woman or a gay man, say, there are certain traits, gender traits that are attractive about that. It's not just about genitalia, you know. There are certain things that are considered universally attractive like cross-culturally for both men and women. And yeah, I mean, some of these things are what constitutes gender. So you're never going to be able to abolish gender. But at the same time, I think often the idea of gender is used to, to oppress women. So the idea that women need to be, you know, in the kitchen or women need to be fulfilling a certain role in society, you know, the homemaker or whatever, I think. You know, I, I still believe in freedom of choice. <clears throat> I think people should be able to maximize their own potential. But the idea that masculinity and femininity are just complete social constructs, I think that's nonsense. And I think if that were true, humans would be the only species in which that were true. Mm. So I don't believe that at all. I want to move on to this period of grief that you had when your grand passed, mate. So you, you've talked about the process when your mum found her and, and that initial stage. But I imagine. A lot of people can relate to someone's immense grief when they lose a parent, a child or a sibling. But I think because of the distance, people sometimes find it harder in general conversations with grandparents. And you've spoken already about why you found this so profoundly intense for you. So just tell the listeners about this stage and why it made you as well question a lot of your own previous behaviour. The distance, you mean? Sorry, I was misunderstanding. What do you mean by the distance? So the distance as in because it's grandson to grandchild instead of parent to son or daughter. There's the extra generation. So some people, as you said, might not be as close to their grandparents, might not even meet them, etc. So I think a death of someone close to you, it does make you reflect on your behaviour generally because you start to reflect on your behaviour around them during their life. So however close a relationship, there are always things you regret saying, or ways of behaving that you regret around that person, like however much you love somebody. You've never been a perfect human being around them. You've always uh, been short with them. And that's no different for me. There were times when, especially, you know, during lockdown, when I was looking after my grand, when we're cooped up in a small house, when I could get frustrated with her. And then when she's died, I came to reflect on those things. You know, I felt guilty. I should have felt like I should have behaved in a more patient manner in many ways and that invariably leads you to reflect on how you behave generally towards other people so I do think that you do kind of pause and think about those things a bit more on a deeper level I certainly did because I lost someone who was very close to me so it does impact your behavior and you also I think you look at how so my grand was a very selfless person she really was a, a very selfless person and so when you lose someone like that close to you you try to kind of keep their memory alive in a way by adopting some of, trying to at least adopt some of the ways, embody some of the ways they behave towards people. So trying to learn from how they treated people. And so I do think it does, for me anyway, this is an ongoing thing. It's, it's not like I finished grieving or finished mm. this kind of process, but it does change the way you behave and makes you kind of more introspective about what you can learn from how you treated this person and how they behave themselves. I'm right in saying that when you were in the early stages of this intense period of grief, you were in a really bad place, mate. And when we spoke off air, you said that you told yourself, if you keep behaving like this, you won't have anyone left, let alone losing your grand. So what was going on in your head? What was your mental health state like at this point? Yeah, I think immediately following the death of my grand, I think I know I was taking Vivance at that time, which I think was making things worse because... It was making me more agitated, more paranoid and impatient 
with the people around me who were trying to make me feel better. So I don't think that helped. But I mean, grief itself is what I've come to realize more retrospectively is that, you know, it's normal to grieve. It's normal to go through a period of time where it is almost debilitating. And in contemporary society, everything is almost about productivity and you're expected to just get back on the horse, so to speak, straight away when something like this happens. Where, whereas I don't think that's really either optimal or, or natural. I think it is normal to grieve. And I think the idea that you should be able to just go back to normal within a couple of weeks when one of the most profound things that's like ever to happen to you has just occurred, that's absurd. I think you need a period to grieve. And I'm glad I did that, even though it felt debilitating at the time. Otherwise, I think when people don't grieve, when they try and bury those emotions just to become productive again, get back to normal, that can turn into complex grief, which is a much more longer term issue. And it's not something you want to be dealing with. Whereas I actually feel almost a year on now, I feel every day is a bit better in some ways, at least. And that period of just debilitating grief you know and and really feeling those emotions wasn't a bad thing I don't think in hindsight although I kind of again yeah I regret how I kind of pushed some people away who were trying to help me yeah which which isn't nice for them but grief feels very lonely because the thing with it is you you feel like you're the only person who can really understand how you feel about that person and however nice somebody else is you feel very lonely because nobody else is feeling what you're feeling so it's a very lonely experience I think grandparent to grandchild relationships are really interesting, mate, because I can certainly speak from my own experience that whenever I used to go see my nan before she died, I've got no grandparents left now, that you almost infantilize yourself a little bit more than when you're interacting with your parents because there's that nostalgia and they perhaps spoil you a little bit more than than your parents do. So when you're grand died you said that it forced you to grow up quite a lot even at the age you are now do you think it's because you lived with her for so long and there was that intense relationship that there was almost this link to your childhood that you needed to let go would that be fair I wouldn't say let go of maybe, maybe let go is the wrong go phrase but something stuff. better phrase than that yeah I think I know what you mean but to me it made me grow up because in the same way that I, I expect that the loss of any close parent or guardian makes you grow up to some extent because you Mm. don't have that safety net anymore even just the emotional safety net so I mean there were times when my grandmother was kind of a financial safety net you know growing up when you kind of spend all your money or something or need some help with the rent which is one thing but there's also just the emotional safety net so you have that place that safe place which would be you know my childhood home her house as a kind of retreat from everyday life so you always have that where you can kind of retreat into your safe space almost regress to childhood to some extent yes whereas when you lose that which everybody does at some point when you lose that it is quite bracing because you realize you kind of are on your own you're truly on your own and yes you will meet people who you'll love or you'll have a a close bond with but you kind of will never have someone who has that same unconditional love and connection that you've had since ever since you were a boy so that presence that's been there ever since you were you came into the world is no more so you are effectively living life anew so my life since the past year has been the first period where I've had to exist in the world without Mm. that emotional safety net so it is a huge thing for me and for anyone who's who's lost that kind of that presence in their life. One thing I found really lovely mate was towards the end of the period where you were living with your gran so intensely and all the time you did quite a lot of media with her 
at, I would say, maybe the end of the second lockdown, maybe the start of the third from memory. You did a really lovely piece in The Times and you did, uh, I think, a video interview piece with her too. And I think there was a quote where she was complimenting your cooking and you kind of mentioned that it was largely takeaways or something like that. Was that a really nice legacy for you both in that sense, that it's in print and in paper that you'll never lose that? Yeah, I mean, that was really special, getting the article in The Times magazine about her and she had a photographer come out, take a picture and stuff. It was after the second lockdown, once she'd been vaccinated and things started to open up a little bit. I mean, it's still, compared to now, it still feels kind of almost like peak COVID. But March 2021, it did feel like coming up for air a bit compared to the previous, you know, 12 months. So getting her photo taken, we did a a short documentary for Channel 4. I did a short documentary for Channel 4 and she was featured in it, as were you. And um, Channel 4 actually made me... um, a video of some of the outtakes last year from that. So I've got some cuts of just her from that film, the whole scene. So that was great. I remember, yeah, taking the, the Times newspaper into her first thing in the morning when she was in it and showing her the front page of the Times too. And yeah, I mean, her face was a picture. So uh, a mixture of horror, horror, surprise. And uh, she was she was happy. She was, she was definitely happy with it. Something to show her friends. Um, <laughs> so that was super cool. That was super cool. I'm glad, I'm so glad we got to do that. Did it help you process the grief? Because I spoke to a previous guest called Lewis Baxter who lost his mum when he was 21 years old. And he said, I wish I had taken more videos of her. I've got all these photos of her, but just to hear her audio and to hear her voice. Was that really special for you having those outtakes and just having that content just to hear her voice whenever you want to? It was actually because, so I used to hate when she left me voicemails because it's just, <laughs> I like, don't listen to voicemails. It's just like, oh, like who's this leave me a voicemail? And it was, it was usually my gran. And I used to tell her not to do it. But then, you know, since she died, it's, it was comforting to know that I could listen to her voice because I have all these voicemails from her. Although, yeah, most of the voicemails is her sounding worried because of, it's her being worried about something like leave me a voicemail because she can't get hold of me and because I'm out late at night or something. So having the clips from from the TV we did before she died, having those clips where she's actually more relaxed, yeah, it is it's definitely comforting. Although it took a while before I could even listen to the voicemails. So only recently mm. was I able to bring myself to listen to them just because, I don't know, if you do something like that, you can then lose a whole day of just feeling really uh, sad. Yes, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and society doesn't really allow much for that, especially with men, I think. Society says, oh, well, you should open up about your emotions and stuff. But, you know... You're still expected to put your to sideline your emotions to be productive or to go to work or to you know to kind of man up and and get mm. things done. There's a lot of kind of um, there's a bit of a hypocrisy there, I think. And when you do, most people don't know how to respond to things like that, which are quite deep because their grief isn't yours, or your grief isn't theirs. Basically, you know, they they don't want to stare at the pain for that long, let alone a couple yeah, of seconds. Yeah, it's a, yeah. So you know, if you mention that you know you've lost someone, the reaction is, "So I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that." And that's all people can do in, in many ways. But it's kind of an autopilot thing, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, really, you're on your own. It's just like mm. people act sympathetically and you know say the, the best thing they can in the moment. But it feels like they're kind of walking on eggshells, and you're still kind of uh, on your own to deal with it. Ultimately, during this grief, you began to think about the path that your uncle went down when his mum died just tell the listeners about him and why it made you anxious about your own reaction to this grief yeah so my uncle as in my grandmother's brother had a very close relationship with his mum he was very spoiled though he like me had severe asthma when he was younger 
he became kind of quite spoiled by his mum. I, I was kind of spoiled by my grand to, to some degree, but I don't think to quite the same degree as he was. And when she died in 1979, that would have been, I think when he was in his late 30s or early 40s, he basically went into a deep depression and really never came out of it. So he then became an alcoholic and he died in 2009 and spent the last kind of two decades of his life just in the pub all day, every day, drawing on his inheritance and, and just drinking himself to death. And he lived in the old house. He lived in with his mother and with the family. He lived in the old family house and he would never go into his mother's old room, her old bedroom. It was just left as it was. And he, like when he died, when he, the house was sold, sorry, before he died and he moved into a flat, but when the house was being sold, the room it was just as it was when she died like he'd refused to even go in there he was kind of burying his grief in some ways it seemed something like that and it was just in this deep depression and and we never got out of it and i remember in the most intense periods of my own grief i could see how things like that could happen or even i could see how people end up you know using lots of drink and drugs and and to kind of mask the pain to take away the pain because i did that at times to kind of mask the pain and as you do that, your life kind of deteriorates around you because you're doing those things, which leads you to do those things even more, to shield yourself from the pain, to, to numb yourself to the pain even more. And it just creates this mm -hmm. like vicious downward spiral where you spend you know, every waking hour just trying to get away from this, this kind of intense internal pain and using you know, drugs, alcohol, or just denial or, or disassociation or many things. And so in some ways you have to face the emotions get comfortable with those negative emotions and the grief and just let it sit there and however mm. hard that is because otherwise i think he was my cautionary tale that if you don't do that things can go wrong very quickly and it can be very hard to get out of that dig yourself out of that hole the longer it goes on i, I suppose when you were in the midst of that there was this nihilism that emerged when we spoke off air in relation to your grief james you said that you felt at one point you know just what's the point of of doing anything anymore was that your lowest moment that's something that still occasionally i feel because it's just a depression that comes from the grief really i mean i'd never been depressed in my life before well maybe i think i probably was a bit during lockdown but prior to kind of 2020 depression is not something i that ever had to deal with really i felt like a very resilient person i still feel like that but there are times especially when you're going through a period of a very intense grief where you do question the point of anything because things that held value before in your life, in your kind of journey through life, they start to pale into insignificance when set against this very intense emotion of, of losing someone so close to you. So, and that can be a positive thing. So, so nowadays I'm starting to think, like recently I'm starting to think of that in a more positive vein. So things that used to fluster me in the past don't so much anymore because having gone through something that to me was so personally intense it feels like I can cope with many of the things that life throws at me that in the past maybe would have flustered me I mean it's a bit like you're in some you know horrible car accident and you get through it and then you know a few days later your cat scratches you it's like whatever you know it's compared to what you've come through things just like pale into insignificance in some ways like I don't want to say that grief is itself is like a blessing but if you come through the experience having a new perspective on life in some ways, a more kind of grounded perspective, you know, a, a better sense of perspective mm. about what's important and what's not. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that I'm coming to a place like that gradually now.
Some things I thought were important before now I don't think are so important. Your value system changes a bit, maybe. I don't know, because it's, it's still too early to say for me. I'm still, still going through that. When you were in the midst of the grief, you also appeared on an episode of Trigonometry, a YouTube channel, which I, I listen to and watch quite a lot. And you casually referred to or alluded to the fact that you were you were going through a lot at the time. You were speaking about a completely different issue on their episode. And you put out a tweet this week, which I found quite funny, where one of the hosts, Constant Kissing, said to you, you know, you used to be buff, mate. What happened? And it kind of kicked you out of maybe a stupor or funk, or maybe you, you need to hear the, the hurtful truth to get back in the gym. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a friendly comment. It was just like, oh, because we'd done a podcast in summer 2019. And then I was back on the show in April 2022. And he just commented, uh, I remember you used to be pretty buff. And uh, it was like they used to be because I, I lost <laughs> loads of weight at the time. I was like down to 72 kilos because I wasn't really eating on the back of the grief. And also the Vyvanse medication, it's like an appetite. Amphetamine suppresses your appetite. So I wasn't eating properly while I was taking the medication as well. So I got down to 72 kilograms, which is, I haven't been so low in weight since I was, I don't know, in my early 20s or something before I even started going to the gym. Yeah, that was like a catalyst in some ways to um, get back on it. And I have been since. I'm grateful for that comment because uh, <laughs> it wasn't a mean comment or anything. It was just, it just reminded me that, oh yeah, I did, didn't I? Like, what am I doing? I did used to be like that. So why am I not like that again? The gym has massively helped with mental health, I think. In my case, I understand people value therapy and I've had therapy in the past, but it was uh, the gym functions kind of like therapy to me in mm. some ways. It creates that structure in your life and around and something to structure your day around and I just feel a sense of accomplishment when I've finished a big workout it feels like even if I do nothing else that day I've still done something that's that's kind of worthwhile and I just like being strong I like being strong and I just it's just something I enjoy you have something to work towards it makes you sort your diet out more so you're actually healthier generally clothes fit better improves your self-esteem and stuff there's just like I think everybody who can should go to the gym yeah, man. I'm obviously in your camp and uh, I think sometimes you do need to hear the harsh truth because it kicks you out of uh, perhaps a plateau or a, or a funk you were in. I remember, this is a few years ago now, I always tell this story. I'm telling it on a podcast now, so it's in it's in memory forever. I think I was about three years into the gym, maybe three or four. And like, I remember I was still living with my parents at the time and I, I like came home and I was obviously like sweating a lot and I took my shirt off. My dad was just looked at me and was like, Mm, you're getting a bit fat from the sides there Fred just and I was like Jesus Christ <laughs> absolutely ended my life and I realized that I needed to stop eating like <laughs> chocolate and hot cross buns every single day when I got back from work because I was so hungry but yeah <laughs> yeah I think the gym is for me anyway it teaches you this idea of deferred gratification uh, mm. it kind of embeds that in you in your psyche a bit more so the way I think about it is I hardly ever want to go to the gym when I'm getting ready. Like it seems like even a chore to get ready and then I've got to walk down there. And there's just this process that seems a bit of a hassle. But it's like I do an hour and a half. You know, the whole process takes an hour and a half, you know, getting ready, going down there. Have an hour and a half of pain for the other 22 and a half, 23 hours of the day where I feel really good because I've done that. So it's like that kind of sacrifice for the happiness and the long-term gains. And also the idea that, you know, the, the progress in the gym, it takes a long time. So it's not, it's not, there's no magic pill. Well, I guess no. there is. Well, steroids. I mean, there is, but yeah, we, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but doing it in a healthy, like natural way, there's no kind of magic pill. And, and it can be, you know, back in, in May, I started going to the gym again, you know, four or five times a week after I'd had kind of a year, just a year off a year of not eating properly. And it took 
it's taken, you know, now it's like seven months, seven, eight months. And now I can really see the difference. It does take a while. It took it takes a four while, months man. before I could really see like a proper difference. And that's mm. like four months of going four days a week. So, you know, it's not something you can just pick up two weeks before a date or two weeks before your holiday in Ibiza and expect to get it, you know, sorted. It kind of teaches you that idea of kind of working for a long-term goal and, and believing in the process and being kind of process-orientated rather than just results-orientated. Like you have to find a way to enjoy the pain, which I think is a very beneficial thing to learn. Like same with writing, you have to find a way to enjoy the process rather than just thinking all the time about the finish line. Before we move on to how you've moved forward and come out more and more of this intense period of grief, mate, if your gran was listening to this podcast, and I'm sure she is somewhere, given all that you've achieved in the last year, what would you think you would say to her? And what do you think she would say to you? I was in Florida in October covering this conference for a book I'm writing. Uh, I actually had this dream one night while I was there. Like, I, it was a very vivid dream. I dreamt that I was in my grand's old house, like my childhood home. I dreamt that I saw her there. She was like an elderly lady. It was a, it was as I remembered her from like the last years. She was an elderly lady and she was going into her bedroom. And I called out to her. It felt like to me that it was real, you know. I was like, thought I saw like her ghost or something. And I was like, well, ghosts are actually real, you know. Because ne- I've always been quite sceptical of things like that. And I was like, well, okay, so ghosts are actually real. I started to talk to her and, you know, told her how much I missed her and, and all of this. And she kind of looked at me confused didn't quite understand what I was saying. But then I told her that actually, don't worry, everything's fine. My life is okay. I haven't screwed up my life or anything. Things are going well in many aspects. And then she just got this huge smile on her face. And then I woke up. And it was it was one of those incredibly vivid dreams where, you know, she was always worried about me, like what would happen when she died? Would I be okay and stuff? And I was worried about her worrying. So the dream was kind of... Um, I guess because it was something I was thinking about all the time. Yeah, it, it kind of was playing on my mind, which hence why I had the dream. But I think, you know, it reassured me in a weird way because not that I actually believe in ghosts or anything, but things are okay and she needn't worry. And I partly feel a responsibility to do something with my life because I don't want her to have wasted her time on me. Mm. If you get what it means, I don't want to completely screw up my life because that would feel like I'm not making the most of what she gave me in terms of her time and her love and all of this. So, yeah. You decided to access therapy to deal with your grief, James. So did you find that helpful or not? And what tools did it help you put in place to deal with it? I had therapy, yeah. It was before my grand died, shortly before actually. And it was helpful. I mean, I think not taking the medication anymore has been also helpful because some of the things I thought were issues for me were actually more drug-induced from the medication I was taking. And since I've stopped taking it, those things have kind of dissipated. But therapy was good in just going over things from childhood and their meaning and things like this and the meaning I attached to them and understanding that the meaning you attach to events can change. You can change that yourself proactively. So the meaning you attribute to something that happened to you when you are a child, say, that's subjective. You don't have to attach that meaning to it. It's the same as, you know, if someone does wrong to you in some way, it's subjective, the meaning you attach to it. So you could believe that's your fault in some way, why you were victimized or whatever. But you can change that meaning and you can realize maturity in some ways is realizing that it's not all about you. It's sometimes people are just assholes or whatever. 
And that's their problem. You may have gotten the crosshairs of that person, but it's not your kind of responsibility. It's, it's their problem. They're radiating out that kind of low vibration energy, as the wellness gurus say, spirituality gurus say, that kind of low vibration toxicity, that negativity. And it's not your kind of problem. It's, it's their issue, even if you did get caught in the crosshairs of it. So I think therapy is useful in that. I think the more useful thing with things like therapy, I mean, I think men and women tend to approach these things slightly differently on average. So mm -hmm. I think that men tend to be more like outcome focused and want the strategies to kind of work through these things where I think women tend to get more out of just talking about the issues. So I think, yeah, it does help for men to talk about their problems and not to bottle up those emotions. I definitely agree with that. And I'm sure that's the ethos of this podcast. I also think as men, we can benefit from having specific concrete strategies to to kind of leave those issues behind. It's not just cathartic to us to talk yeah. about it. Yeah, women in my life, they seem to get a lot more out of just talking about these things than I do. But that may just be me though. After the grief, you were also prescribed antidepressants. So have they been helpful to go on to one set of pills when you've just come off another one? I was prescribed citalopram, not immediately after my grand died, because that would be, to me anyway, too much like just putting a Band-Aid on a kind of gaping wound. You shouldn't, I don't think, try and just numb the grief away with pharmaceutical products. Although I did try with cannabis and alcohol, and I don't think that's a particularly healthy approach. You can't just hide from the emotions. But citalopram was helpful after I got through the initial stage of the grief in terms of just getting some momentum back in my life. So... I found that with, say, going to the gym or, or doing some work, I could do it for like a day and then I'd immediately fall back off and would just be in this depressed state and couldn't get out of bed the next day. So it was very hard to build that kind of momentum. Once I had that momentum, Sotalopram helped me get momentum in the gym. So I was going kind of four days a week again, felt like I was making progress, building that kind of momentum, upwards momentum rather than downwards momentum. You're on the way then, you know, you have those kind of structures in place in your life that keep you on track and keep you kind of functioning, keep you leaving the house, keep you going to, to, to meet friends and stuff, not just isolating yourself, not just kind of falling into this spiral of day drinking and, and smoking weed in the day and, and things like this. I think Sotalopram, the antidepressant was really helpful in getting me on track in terms of building those structures in my life to get things back to um, something like normality instead of just wallowing in my room, you know. You spoke earlier in the pod about your gran being that main support, safety network, safety net, emotional safety net. So when she died, did it feel like because she was your world in many ways, your world was collapsing and you almost needed to build a new one? When my gran initially died, it felt like I was living in kind of a computer simulation sometimes. Felt like almost disassociated from it. And I guess that's the brain's way of dealing with intense pain. So, I mean, I've heard people say similar things when they have some aspect of some trauma event. There can be a disassociation. It's because something is so intense that your brain essentially can't process it all in one go. So it has to almost small chunk it. So I did feel like that. You do start to reevaluate the world anew because it's you have to look at things in a fresh perspective you have to learn to live with that lack of that safety net and that obviously takes time to get used to and I'm still getting used to it now I'd say yeah losing my ground almost a year ago it's losing that kind of safety net like, I wouldn't say I'm used to it yet some days I really miss it I really miss her but I really miss that kind of that sense of certainty that someone's in my corner all the time you just have to go on really you go on you get through it I owe it to her to go on and make the best of it 
I imagine your partner and your friends and other family members have been great in supporting you, James, but you also have a cat now. How's the cat been helpful? Pedro. That's the real question I want to ask on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, good. I mean, the cat's been so helpful that I actually have a tattoo of him on my wrist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the cat's been great. I would encourage anyone to get a pet anyway, but in particular, the cat was a good, healthy distraction. So as opposed to kind of alcohol and drugs and things like this, I had the cat from my, my sister gave me the cat when it was very young. I had this kitten to look after. So you don't have so much time to ruminate on things and, and get into this negative thought loop when you have a cat that needs attending to. You have to get on, you have to take action. And I think that can be a positive thing. Sometimes, you know, you can spend too much time ruminating and, and thinking and going over these thought loops. And sometimes, you know, just taking action is, is, is a better answer to actually just do things and change your kind of physicality and start even just getting up off the sofa and going for a walk or something or going and looking off to play with a cat, changing your physicality, your kind of emotions often just follow behind. So it's been hugely helpful. Yeah. And obviously a comfort, a comfort at times as well, but just having some presence to kind of take care of as uh, it took my mind off of some of the darker things. And as a final question, as we reflect on this continued mental health journey, what did the grief and what has this last year, two years since we chatted, taught you about yourself, mate? I'd say on one hand, so after lockdown and the, the incident with the stalking, I've realised that I'm quite a resilient person. I thought that at the time I'm quite a resilient person because that was very nightmarish and I feel like I got through that somewhat unscathed anyway, you know, relatively, relatively well. But then I suppose the last 12, 18 months when I've lost my gran and had issues with medication then come off them, it feels like sometimes these things have a long tail. So I may have thought I was super resilient for getting through COVID and the stalking affair. But, you know, they did have an impact on me afterwards. And there was kind of a price tag attached to that that, I, that had to be paid, a debt that had to be paid later on in terms of my emotional health. So, I mean, I know I'm kind of rambling a bit here, but, but I'd say that, I know, I'd say not repressing emotions is what the last three years have taught me. So not trying to hide from negative emotions. I don't mean just kind of, no, let me rephrase that. I mean, like facing up to negative emotions, negative feelings, and being able to, to sit with those negative emotions and instead of repressing them or hiding from them. Because, yeah, I think that's super important with grief and with negative experiences. Because otherwise, I do think there's this long tail attached to them. If you, if you try and hide away, if you try and repress it, if you try and suppress it with drugs alcohol things like this it lengthens the process to get through it whereas i think if you take time out if you can to just kind of process everything that's happened i know that can be kind of a luxury maybe it's especially nowadays when so much work is so kind of intense people have so many intense jobs it's hard to take the time out but i think sometimes if you don't the long-term cost can be even worse you know and on that note my mate James Bloodworth, thank you so much for coming back on the Just Checking In podcast, talking to me. And it's been great to catch up, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Love the podcast. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big, big thank you to James for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for talking so deeply and so movingly about his lovely gran and the impact that her death has had on him. I will put a link to where you can read the beautiful interview they both did together in The Times when he was living with her in the show notes, as well as some other media they did. 
Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. Those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.